uh, episode two of the Mark Andrini interview. Uh, on the first interview, we discussed the 50s and 60s. And this show, we're going to delve into the um, 70s and 80s. 80s? You're just your 70s? Well, Mr. French, what do you think? We, got, we, have, a, we have an advisor here, uh, <laughs> exemplary advisor on, the, on this. He's in the, in the wings. Let's, let's see if we can cover it. Should we just do the 70s and just and then do the 80s another if time? Spills over into the 80s. I'm on it. <laughs> okay, so no spilling into the 80s. Keep it within the 70s. We'll start there. If it gets yeah. dark and cold, right. we'll, we'll do the 80s another time. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, December, January 1st, 1980. What was going on? January 1st, 1980. No, January 1st, 1970. January 1st, 1970? Yes, yes, yes. January 1st, 1970, I think was, I think that was uh, one month before I flew uh, to Peru, my first big trip by myself, you know, going, leaving the country, and I went to Peru with a couple, with one friend, and, um, we only went to Peru because we couldn't afford to go to Australia. That's where I'd rather gone. But I only had 400 bucks. It used to cost $1,000 to go to Australia. How much did it cost you to Peru? $1,970. $400. Okay. That's how much I got from my, my van. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to... Which van did you have? Which, which is the uh, It was a, a Corvair oh. uh, factory camper. Yeah. It was really cool. wish you still had that car. Uh, they're all good. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had lots of them. <laughs> so I went to Peru... And, uh, you know, we'd read all about the surf there. They had the, the Peruvian Invitational, International Invitational. And that was essentially the world format at the time. That's where the, all the people from all over the world would come and compete. It's a two-week event. I didn't go for that. But I flew down there not knowing that that event was going to be held in about three days after I got there. Yeah. So my friend went up to Machu Picchu, and I, some, I don't even know how I got this was a long time ago. Right? So I ended up. The 70s is a long time ago. Well, it's 19th, January 1st, 1970s, a really long time ago. So I'm 19, and I get driven down to uh, the Club Waikiki, which is their, you know, it's like a country club at the beach. And uh, I just, I made friends. I, uh, somebody took me in. I had a place to stay. And I didn't have any money or a car or anything. So, you know. I mean, I bought a one-way ticket. I didn't know where, what I was going to do. I just flew down there, and this is what happened. So you get one-way ticket, you got no money, but you got a place yeah. to stay, right? First day, yeah. Uh-huh. And then two days later, I got invited to be in the Peruvian Invitational. They asked me to come join and serve this two-week event. Did they not have enough guys, or did oh, they know no, who you were? No, it's, no. They, nobody knows. I mean, I'm just a 19-year-old kid. I just started making boards. I, I didn't even bring one of my own. I brought a hout with me that I traded. Whatever board I made was one of the bad ones. And so I got a Hout uh, 7-4 round tail from my friend John Chapin. And I brought that with me. It was a great board. And so I just made friends, and I was in the contest. It was incredible. I met every famous guy at the time. George Downing, Joey Cabell was there, uh, Gordo and Flacco Barreto, uh, Jimmy Blairs, who was, became world champion two years later. You know, Lord Tallyho, Lord Blair, Blair's is his dad, and Lord Blair, Blair's is his sister. All these guys are there, 
and um, and, and many more. I met all the top surfers and shapers from Brazil and Peru, and made friends with all of them. And we're just kids, and uh, it was epic. Oh, and epic. And my purpose was there, representing California. So him and I ended up becoming really good friends. And we represented California. And uh, after the event, he invited me to come and spend the summer with him. So this must have been in May of 1970. So I flew. You're still, you're still a pro at that time? Or did yes. you go back and come back? No, no. I, still there. I stayed there. I met him. Was there a number of months. And we traveled and surfed, you know, by bus and whatever. I surfed the whole coast of Peru, just being taken around with Peruvian friends I made. And Mike Purpose brought me back to his house at Hermosa Beach. He was like one of the top two surfers in California at the time. He was in the world contest. He was an incredible surfer, really a great guy. I spent the whole summer with him. And uh, so that was my first time really spending time in Southern California. So we surfed from Hermosa Beach down to the cliffs in, in uh, San Diego. Yeah. And, you know, of course, all of his friends are famous. And uh, Rolf Arness was one of his close friends who had surfed with us often, who he became world champion the next year. Rolf Arness was the closest surfer that I've ever known. And Tommy Kerr and those two were the two finest surfers I ever was in the water with. They're both very similar. So what made this so good in your, in your eye? They went through the water like there was no resistance. They would just paddle like they're floating on a cloud, right past everybody, just with this fluidity, this incredible smooth motion with incredible speed with no effort. That's how both of them are when you're in the water with them. You know, I've surfed with really great surfers, including uh, our friend over here to my right, was always one of the top surfers here, Mr. French. And, you know, over the years, we've surfed with world-class guys, including, you know, Sean Thompson and Kelly Slater. I've surfed with those guys in Jeffrey's Bay when it's six to eight feet. You know, I mean, I surfed around all these famous people, and uh, that none of them compare to Tommy Curran or Rolf Arnaz. There's Do you just, agree with that, Mr. French, yeah? just like Tommy. Yeah, they're magic, pure magic in the water. But I digress. I somehow got myself into the... No, that's still 70s. Okay, so that's Peru. So I finished surfing... Peru sounded like a fun trip. Oh, it's... That, you were there like a year there or six months there? No, just four months. But it sounds like you remember every, every, every minute of How that. How do you forget it? Yeah. It was... Okay. But, so, then I returned, and that's when it really got going with my surfboard career, which actually started, you know, that was the Vietnam War, that you, you have to talk about Vietnam, right? because that was, that was the number one dark cloud that hung over all, all of us right. worldwide. It was a, a horrific time of, you know, moral debate, you know, do I go? A lot of people went to Canada, a lot of people tried to get out of the draft. My mom raised us to, you know, follow the Ten Commandments, never do anything you shouldn't do. And, but I really believed that my conscience, I wasn't raised in any church at that point, but my conscience 
said, I can't, I can't go start shooting people. You know, I just didn't believe I could do it. So I applied uh, for a conscientious objector status and eventually got it. And then the lottery came out, and I had a high lottery number, so I was number 312. I wasn't even going to get drafted after all that. Right. So when I got back from Peru, I decided that it would be the right thing to do to serve my country, so I did civil service duty. What, what, what did you I, in what regard, in, in what well, capacity? Well, what they did is there was a center that would assign you to that type of work. They would place you, and I was placed in a home taking care of a man who had got polio six months before the vaccine came out. And um, so I was a, like, you know, medical caretaker, a caretaker, yeah. right. So I did that for a year. And I just was, I was staying in my dad's house in San Mateo for that year. So did your dad mind you being a conscious objector? Of course he did. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys battle it out or is this? I have a lifetime of battles with my dad. Yeah. But that's okay. I always follow my conscience. Yeah. And so I did that. And while I was doing that, I had already been making surfboards, right, in the 60s for myself. And so it's the shortboard revolution. It's just full swing, right? And I'd sold my out in Peru, so I'd come home and make myself a board. And so on the weekends, I would make one surfboard every weekend make myself aboard, I'd go surfing, and because I was staying in San Mateo, I would go surf the San Mateo coast, you know, Año Nuevo, White Oak Creek, yeah. come down to Four Mile, Santa Cruz. I like it there, but sharky there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't know anything. We didn't know any better. Right. So it was fine. And actually, in those days, those breaks were not really surfed yet. I mean, no one surfed Scott's Creek yet. Uh, Waddell was unsurfed. We, that's where I tested all my boards. I'd go there with my brother and a few friends and be the only ones there. Yeah. And Four Mile maybe would have one or two guys, but it wasn't, there, nobody surfed up there. Yeah. So every time I went to the beach, uh, someone would see, I would see somebody, and it would seem like every week I'd get an order when I go surfing. I don't know where or how, but a guy would see my board. Where'd you get that board? I made it. Will you make me one? Sure. So, how much were you selling the boards at the time? I believe I'm going to say they were sixty-five dollars because I would buy my materials either from John Mel, and he just moved up here year before. I'd either go to John Mel or Bob Weiss in San Francisco. Both of them sold materials, and they're like one or two years older than me, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I'd buy a blank resin and fiberglass. And then I would make one surfboard. Would you shake the board at those boards at? At my dad's house in the garage. Dad, did your dad mind? I don't think dad liked anything. <laughs> <laughs> of course he didn't like it. <laughs> so, uh, but, but you're okay. not, but you an entrepreneur and you're, you're making money. You're, you're making it just. You're making the beginning for yourself. Well, it's what even, was what was wrong with that? It's even funnier than that. So I'm making a board every week, and this only is going on for maybe four months. And I hooked up with Robert Johnson, who is a really well-known Half Moon Bay guy who is in the boat building business, and he's taking up glassing surfboards. And he saw my boards, and he said, hey, 
I need a shaper, why don't you shape? Because I baked the whole board, and he said, you shape all glass. This Hoffman Bay. Yeah, so he had a, a barn, like a, the country soul era we were in, and he had a really cool barn on Prisma Canyon Road. And um, he lived there with his girlfriend, Nadine, who became his wife. They were to have been together their entire lives. And he glassed and airbrushed, and I shaped, and we made, and I made my own, I made all my logos then, because I learned how to silk screen. And so I made a half moon bay, like an oval, with a little corner cut out like a moon, half moon. And it was half moon bay surfboards. And I never knew it, but Jeff Clark told me, like in the 90s, he says, you know, I ripped off your logo, right? <laughs> and I looked at his Clark logo, and it's the oval with a little corner. And I just was laughing, because I never thought about that. Right. But we made boards for all the San Mateo Coast guys, including Jeff Clark. He's probably 13 years old at the time. Wow. Yeah. So I shaped all their boards, and then my dad said, hey, we're going to Maui for a couple weeks. Will you house it? Well, we're gone. Where was the house at? It's in San Mateo. Yep. So I've been there maybe four or five months. I don't know how long. Maybe it was a year, because I was starting to remember. But anyway, they go away. The second they leave, all my friends and all their girlfriends are coming over, and we're having parties and barbecues every night. In the house, there's about nothing left of it by the time they get, they get back. So Dad comes home and he says, if you want to be in the surfboard business, then you need to get out of here and go find a job. He didn't realize I already had one. Right. So he said, you go out, you go to every shop until you find a place that will hire you, and you're leaving in 10 days. He gave me 10 days. To get out. To get out. Yeah. So I built a camper for the back of my 58 Dodge pickup, put it on the back. It was really cool, an A-frame. I made the glass window and painted a waterfall on the door and all this shit. And of course, I had a beard and long hair. I looked just like my brother. Yeah. <laughs> Today. I looked homeless. But it, you didn't look homeless then. You looked right. like, you know, subversive. Right. So I got in my truck, and I went down, all the way down, uh, Highway 1, and of course there's only two surf shops. One was in Monterey, and I don't remember where the other one was. I ended up right back in Santa Barbara where I'm raised. And the first place I go was Spindrift Surfboards, and Richard Reed owned it, Bob Hawkinson. And uh, both of them were in Hawaii at the time, and a young guy was kind of running the shop, and hey, we need a shaper. So they hire me. So serendipity. Did you show your boards? Or they just oh yeah, I brought a board with yeah. me. That was my calling card. I brought the really cool 6.5 Arctail Stubby I made, and we want you to work here. So I worked it. I, so I shaped it at Spindrift, and within three months, they decided to fold. And I'd met John uh, Campbell from New York, who was a, the glasser. He's a really great guy. He's a real legend in New York. He's older than me. And... Uh, in the surfboard business? Yes. On the East Coast? Yes, and he was glassing there at Spinder if I was shaping. And he says, and I'm a man of the world at like 19 or 20. And so those guys said, hey, you know, just do your own thing. So I bought them out for 150 bucks. <laughs> I bought their racks. I never owned any tools at this point. Yeah. So I bought a planer, and I bought their racks, and I changed it to Andrini surfboards. So that would have been 1971. And Trini first, first came to fruition was in Santa Barbara in 1971. Yes, that's when I started using my name. And I've been making boards really for two years already. But that was when I started putting my name on them. You know? So 
that's the beginning of the 70s. Were you making any type of, anybody who wanted, did you, did you advise people what to do, what to, what to shape, or did you make anything? I made custom, I made custom boards, and I basically was like all of us, you know, Randy was part of all this. We were all connected through the, the coconut pipeline, or is it the pineapple pipeline? I can't remember what it's called. The coconut wireless. So all the Australians were making hulls. You know, they started with the B-bottoms. The Californians followed Hawaii where they were making mini guns, you know, baby guns, pintails, all the Dick Brewer. And so we were experimenting with all that. You know, Mike Hinson comes out with the down rail. He really made that come to life in 71. So whatever was going on, you know, we were all connected in following this path and trying everything. We went through twin fins in 1970. Uh, then they went to down rail. Before that, they were pocket rockets with no rocker and flipped up noses and rolled up rails in the nose. Then 510 twin fins with a diamond tail and a fin on each corner. And we went through all these periods where we went all the way down to 510. Then we drifted back to 6'8", 7 foot. You know, a gun was 7'6". So all that happened really between 69 and 70. That's it. About in those four years, we covered all those genres. Unbelievable. Yeah. Four years. And yeah. We made them all. All of us collectively made all these boards and surfed. While he's sitting here, and I asked him before, and I asked him before you showed up, when did you first meet Randy? And he said, "I don't remember." Because you have you have impeccable memory of that particular time. Well, I try and block out. Well, you I mean, you remember people's names. I, I mean, I remember. <laughs> Right, Randy, right? You remember these, all these names. Do you remember when you first met um, I, I'm quite Randy? sure that I don't remember our first meeting, but I'm quite sure it would be mid-70s because I would come up to see my dad all through the 70s and visit him and then would surf Scott's Creek in the winter. So you had a good relationship with your dad, even though... Yeah, he, I mean, yeah. yeah. No, I, we always stayed contact okay. with each other. Right. I just never made the A-list. <laughs> Did your brother? Hell no. <laughs> the difference between him and me is just, which is why I respect him, he never tried. <laughs> I was attempt, making a feeble attempt at it. You know, that's yeah. the only difference between right. us, really. So I'd say, Randy, we would have met at Scott's Creek, because there was a small court. I don't think Scott's, sure, Dickie Keating surfed in 72 on a surfboard with bicycle handlebars to turn the fan. That's a famous little clip of film in an old Fred Windish movie. But it really, really, I'd say 74 is when guys were surfing it. And well, I was one of them because when you drive down from San Mateo, from Apple Bay, yeah. uh, you drive right past all these places and all these years were going, that sure looks like a surf spot. You know? Yeah, right. And it's a hell of a wave. Really good wave, and Randy always surfed a really good, lanchy waves. That he was way better at riding than me, but I was always drawn to those kind of waves, so we would have met there. Did Randy ever buy one of your boards? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I would have lost all respect for him. He made his own. Yeah, yeah. He knows how to make a good board. Right. <laughs> have you ridden one of his? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe bought one of his. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> he would have no respect for me if I did that. <laughs> <laughs>
get ahead of, ahead of ourselves. In fact, 19, where were we at before? 1972? So 72. 72. And so, you know, I'm making boards. I got rented a little barn. And uh, between Santa Barbara and Montecito, there's an old little neighborhood with a Victorian house, and they had a barn in the backyard. And, and I said, I'll pay your electric bill if I can use your barn. So they got an extension cord from the house after my barn. I bet you hippies were living in it. And my wife and I, who I met and married, is one of the girls who came to those barbecues all summer. And we lived in an apartment right up the street. So I made a couple boards a week, maybe three, two or three, I believe. And so that took me four days a week. And so, and I always work six days a week. I still do. And so I would work two full days a week doing piecework. So I started with... Doing piecework? For the other board builders. Okay. Yeah. Now there's only... I'm sure I'll get this right. I'm only going to talk about downtown Santa Barbara proper, but there was, you know, Bob Duncan had taken over Wilderness by then. There's John Bradbury. Of course, Rennie Yater. And then Al Merrick had just come to town about 1969. And so... We were the, there, there was a couple guys who deleted, but I'm just talking about, I mean, we had cars that we'd only drive 10 miles, so we really stayed in a region. So we were the main board builders, and so I started sanding for Al Merrick, was the same as me, he built the whole board from scratch, by himself, as did I, and he was... And the, including the fins. Yeah, we made our own fins, yeah. too. But he was about eight years, he is about eight years old. So he was getting some dealers back east, and he had extra boards to make. So he asked me if I would sand for him. We just naturally all became friends. So I sanded for Al one day a week, and then I laminated for Yater one day a week. I ended up working over there. And I'd occasionally laminate for Bradbury and Wilderness. So that was on my two days. So I worked six days a week making surfboards. You're making good money. You're making good money for the time, yeah? Well, good money for us was paying our bills every month, yeah. having Food. two Volkswagens that are paid for, and paying our rent, and life was perfect. Yeah. I mean, it was very good. Yeah. I always never had to worry about money. Right. And uh, we just had enough to get by, and that's all we cared about. Yeah. It's yeah. perfect, really. Yeah. So, fast forward. So now Al is getting busier, and... Now we introduce Bill Barnfield. So Bill Barnfield is about two years older than me, and he's from Azusa or somewhere down in East L.A. originally, but he'd been to the North Shore like in 1970. Surf Pipeline was New Lopez, and then he moved to Seaside, Oregon, where he became like the guru. And he built his board builder. He built his own boards start to finish, just like all of us did. And here's Billy, who's an extremely colorful character. Did you know Randy? Yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> we all know each other. Yeah. So Billy comes down, and it's just me and Al working at the Helena Street. In those days, Helena Street is where we built the surfboards. And his wife, Terry, had a little showroom, and she ran the showroom. So I was the first employee Al ever had that worked in the, in the factory. And because it was just Al, then it was me and Al. So it's me and Al covered with dust. Terry says, hey, there's this guy that wants to talk to you. So Al calls me out. We walk in. I'll never forget it. It was like yesterday. 
we're standing out there in the alley there in Helena Street, me and Al, and here's Billy, who's, he's a short guy with a bowl haircut, one tooth missing, and he's totally animated. And he says, yeah, guys, you know, I'm, I'm looking for work, and he's rattling on about, I used to live on the North Shore, and I'm up here in Oregon, and uh, he has this cool board he made, a down rail gun. We're looking at it, it's a nice board, and I uh, wanted to see if there was work. And then he pulls out a newspaper clipping from the Oregonian, and the front page, this is his resume, okay? And there's a picture, a black and white picture, and he's standing there with this, this pose, you know, with this big grin and a tooth missing and the bowl haircut, wearing a super suit. And, you know, the O'Neill suit, dry yeah. suit, with the valve you blow on to blow him up. Yeah. And it says, the caption says, Billy Barnfield, Dean of Oregon Seaside Surfers. That was the caption. He's the proudest guy. He shows us this article. And Al and I are completely captivated by this character. And so Al's, we're talking to each other. I mean, we're interviewing him. And Al said, you know, well, I'm getting more business. What if he says to me, all in this one conversation, in this 20, 15 minutes, we decide that I'm going to take over laminating and Billy's going to be the sander. And so Billy's hired. And so because of Billy, we became best friends. And we surfed together every day, made boards together. And I don't know how long this lasted, but we, you know, we set up a glass shop, me and Billy, for Al at Carpinteria up on the, it's south of town on the bluff just before it drops down to Redcon. Some funky building. We had to hang cardboard on the ceiling so that the metal ceilings would make the resin go off on the top right. of the hot coat before the bottom went off. Yeah. And, and to keep all the cobwebs off the boards. So we set up a glass shop. He had sanded at Hobie, so he knew them really well. He took me down. I got to meet the Patterson brothers and Daddy Bronner and all the famous guys that were making boards then yeah. to pick up production techniques. Because I just did, you know, two boards at a time, right? lay them all out like they do of all the production style. I knew how to blast, but not all those techniques. So I learned all that. We worked for Al maybe not even four or five months. And then Billy tells Al this, Rito, if you're going to be a career surfer, you have to go to the North Shore. And um, and so as a, we jokingly told Al, you know, real men go to the North Shore. <laughs> we're going to the North Shore. And we freaking win. And so, what? We quit. <laughs> and so Billy and I, we each bought a truck from Sears Roebuck. They're like 10 bucks, a metal truck, you know, with a little padlock on it. And we both are married. He's still married to Wendy. And we put our tools and our trunks and wax and a, two T-shirts and a, one pair of flip-flops. And then whatever room was left in the trunk, our wives could put their stuff in. <laughs> So we got one-way tickets to Oahu, and we moved there with no intention, no plan whatsoever. So we moved to the North Shore to, and we went 1970 there. 1973. Yeah. 1973. So we went there because we're career board surfboard builders, and that's what you, that's what you do. So we went there to be students. So I didn't go there to shape. I went there to learn. And uh, so I got me, and they got a job lasting for Mike Eaton, who 
had the bait license. He made all the baits for all the famous surfers. And, you know, Peter Cole and Keith Ball. Um, you know, all those kind of guys. Uh, why did my mind go blank? Um, Mr. Sunset. Yeah, Jeff Hackman. And so, yeah, Hackman was, you know, also all those guys are coming to the house to have me glass their boards. They'd get a shape blank from Pete, and he'd send them over to my house because I'd get them done, like, in four days. So to get the guys in the water. So I didn't do, like, high-end. I did outdoor glassing at my house because I could do one board a day. I'd let laminate it in the morning, the bottom. I'd flip it over, laminate the deck. Then I'd hot coat the deck, have lunch, then I'd flip it over and hot coat the bottom, then I'd surf all afternoon. And then at 4 o'clock, I'd come in and sand it and lost just the bottom and rail, right as the sun was going down, because right. everything would go calm and you had gloss outdoors. So I'd one day, one board a day, from start to finish, and you'd go surfing, glass on the fan and all that. So in that time, uh, Billy had Jerry Lopez shape his guns. So, and in, in those days, the regulars, I surfed Wellesley Land, we lived at Wellesley Land. I surfed Sunset Beach every day at Baroque for that whole season. We got there in September and I left in March. And so I got to slowly kind of work up to it. But Reno Abelera, the regulars who were out like every day at Baroque were Reno Abelera, um, Ben Ipa, you know, Jeff Hackman, uh, uh, Roger. Well, Gary Spies was out, and who, who's um, uh, Roger Erickson was always out. You know, his, his daughter Emmy is the famous big wave writer today. And uh, Peter Cole was always out. I mean, those are the guys who were out every day, and it wasn't crowded. I mean, it seemed to me that there was rarely more than a dozen guys out. And you accepted there? No, I was invisible. <laughs> uh, they didn't care if I was out. Yeah. I never, ever had a problem in the sure with anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't, you know, if you're disrespectful, then, you know, then you're in their radar. I never was. Yeah. I just, I just surfed the outside. I shadowed Jeff Ackman. He was, that's, he was the guy that always surfed the outside boil. He was never inside with everyone else. And there's commonly two wave sets, so he always took whatever wave he wanted. And then if there was a second wave, I'd be the only one out there. Yeah. So I had Barry Kaniapuni shape me a nine-foot gun, so I got to meet Kaniapuni and, uh, you know, ride a board shaped by somebody because I don't know how to shape guns, you know. From Santa Barbara, I'm a Miramar. I'm a two-foot and under specialist. <laughs> so I had the biggest board at Sunset Beach. Everybody rode my board because people were riding eight-foot boards then. And they thought it was so cool. Wow. I think it's 9-2. And I, at the time, I bet I only weighed 138 pounds because I swam all day, every day after my board. There are no surf leashes then. And all I did was swim because every every other wave was the worst wipeout of your life. <laughs> For real. You swim in and get it, go back out. Yeah. Do that every day. So, I spent more time swimming than surfing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I was a better swimmer than surfing. <laughs> But it was the greatest, for me, the highlight of my surfing career. Was, for sure. Was that, was that time? Absolutely. Surfing the North Shore with those people. 
they were I idolized all those people. And every one of them would routinely, you know, drop in on me and cut me off and snuff me into the white water until they fade and then do the big turn. Yeah. And so I used to I used to tell that story all the time and finally one guy said, Well, well it's obvious that you weren't shoulder hopping. I said, I never thought about that. Because I'm afraid of getting pitched over the falls. I would always take off as far outside as you could to get an early roll in. Right. And so I was out on the peak. And so if those guys were inside of me, you know, so I've been cut off. By, Jerry Lopez was always out uh, when Pipeline wasn't breaking. So all those guys, I've, I've got just to cut you off with them. Yeah. Right, you know, this far away, watching these guys in their little speed crouches and driving through those bottom turns and, you know, that's where I learned about that type of surfing. Because I always wanted to understand how can they do what they're doing. It takes a couple of years to figure that out. When, when did you get when did you get to their position? When did you get did you ever get there? Well, I would say that the best I ever surfed in bigger waves didn't actually happen until I was in my fifties. My fifties were my best decade. We're gonna yeah. get that down the road. Yeah, that's later. So anyway, I injured my back inside sunset. It's just an incredibly nasty, you know. I mean, the guys that surf pipeline say, oh, I'm not, I don't like surfing sunset. It's too dangerous. And the guys that surf sunset say, I'm not surfing pipeline. It's too dangerous. They're both really dangerous in two different ways. But that inside reef will just, just annihilate you. I've known of people that have their shoulders dislocated, just pulled out of the sockets from the impact of the waves. I was whiplash so bad that it took me a year for my back to recover, and I crushed all my discs just from getting sucked up and over the falls in there, pulled into a barrel, you know. I was finally feeling really comfortable surfing sunset. There's only one guy out as like an eight-foot day, and I just rolled into a wave and pulled in, and it just sucked me up and over. And so that was the, I decided not to stay on the North Shore after that, and I went back to Santa Barbara and resumed my board business there. Billy never left. He's still there. <laughs> Think about how long ago that was. Yeah, yeah, back in the seventies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Did you go back to Santa Barbara because that way because the waves were too much for you? Well, Santa you... Barbara is always was home for me. It was always that, home. Yeah, and that's yeah. where I had my my re, my surfboard business was, was there. I think we talked. Randy mentioned it. You talked about. You, you, you think uh, of Santa Barbara as being Northern California or Southern California? Uh, it's considered neither. They can say they call it Central California. Right. We're not part of we we're not part of LA. LA starts in Ventura in south down to Imperial Beach. That's yeah. I can only say that because this is a NorCal show. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. So that's how we viewed it, really. Yeah. You know, tongue in cheek, of yeah. course. But the Santa Cruz guys love coming to Santa Barbara because of the ranch and Rincon. And the Santa Barbara guys we loved coming to Santa Cruz because it's just such a cool place. And there's surf here in the summer, and we don't have waves in the summer. Right. Uh, yeah. So there was a connection, and I think I talked about that in the 60s where I met Paul Meltzer and Ken Kaufman and Arthur Gambit. I got connected to the Santa Cruz crew in the 60s. So there's, there's always been a back-and-forth exchange. You know. Plus, I was visiting my dad in the Bay Area, so I was always up here. How many times do you think you've driven that made that drive from Santa Barbara to Santa Cruz? It's uncountable. <laughs> <laughs> many times. Yeah. That's for sure. 
you, do you ever take you know, the big surf, go, go through Big Sur and then surf that. there? That's Absolutely. Surf, yeah. I did that all through the 70s when I come up to see my dad. I always, because I always drove Volkswagen, so it's a two-day trip to go from Santa Barbara to the Bay. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd go up through Big Sur, and I'd surf Pico Creek, and we'd work, out, and I'd surf Fuller's, and then I'd stay in Still a, with no leash. Uh, I think leashes, uh, this would have been after the North Shore, right. so we had leashes. When I came back, by the end of 74, we were using leashes. Okay. Like the beginning of 75, I think. This, 75 is like the year when yeah. pretty much everybody I mean, used someone, For someone who swam as much as you did, you know, this must have been a blessing in disguise. Well, I had destroyed every single board I ever owned <laughs> on the rocks. Yeah. Every single one. You know, so that's why I was happy about it. Because in the rock dance, nobody ever gets good at that. <laughs> no, no. That's not graceful. No. That is not graceful. Yeah. So, yeah, there were leashes. But it, it was interesting because I never surfed with anybody at Fuller's or Pico Creek in all those years of driving through there. Or Montana de Oro, I never surfed with anybody there. Were you told about the surf spots or did you find them for well, yourself? When you're a board builder. Yeah. Everyone tells you right. everything you want to know. Right. I mean, uh, no secrets. They're, they're all secrets, but, but they're among a small group of people. Yeah. Right, Randy? I mean, all of us were told. I mean, if you're making people surfboards, you know, you're, they you take care of you. You're on the inside. I know about every place. I, I always go, how did I know about these places? Someone Everybody that knew them would, would tell you. You're connected to people all up and down the coast, so I would surf those places. And how the hell do you find Fuller's? I found it, and we—it was. But at that point, there's no, there could have been a trail down there. Where well, you? it was just like a straight shoot. Yeah. You know, it was a trail that went straight down. The, the last 30 feet, you had to slide on your butt to get down to the sand. I don't know where you got back up. How'd you get back up? I guess you, we had to just crawl through the dirt to get back up and there. The, and, the, and the poison oak. Well, there was like a little furrow, or what do you call it, like a berm that it, just from people going straight down, yeah. just from erosion. So there was, you'd go through the middle of the poison oak. I never got it. And then we'd stay in Pacific Grove, and I'd surf in Silomar. I, I love that place. And it was always good, you know, since winter time. I don't know. I don't know when it was too many yeah. decades ago, but I always got good waves there. Yeah. There'd be three or four guys out. Yeah. You know, there just weren't a lot of surfers there in those decades, especially in the outlying areas. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Those were those were fun times, but that that was really the beginning of my, you know, so my surfboard career is blossoming, and uh, I had a number of shops in town that yeah. carried your boards. No, no, I, I just, I mean, factories, I always had my own factory. Yeah. And uh, then I stopped doing piecework eventually for the other board builders because I now finally is, had a big enough clientele that I was full-time making my own boards. And now I reach the point where I, where I need a laminator and a sander and a shop guy and all that. And so that happened about 70, 1976. And I heard Yader, you know, because we're friends now, and we surfed together in those periods during those years. And Rennie was, 
Chris always said, I hate making longboards. He's a very contemporary guy. He didn't want to make longboards. Longboarding was coming back a little bit. Everyone wanted a spoon from him. Everybody wanted what? I like a spoon. He yeah, yeah. spoon. He doesn't want to make those. He wants to make modern, contemporary boards. So I heard he was thinking of selling out. So I always laugh at him to picture myself at whatever, 25 years old. Hey, Randy, how about if I buy you out? Like, I have, like, you know, probably $200 in the bank. I don't know what I, why I would even think that was how much, how much was he selling you, how much was he selling his business No, for? I just heard that oh, he was okay. thinking of it. Okay. So I go down. My shop was only two blocks away, so I just walked over. Hey, Randy, you know, I was thinking, and I'm pretty shy, so it was probably a pretty feeble conversation. And I said, well, you know, if you're thinking of, of quitting, maybe I can carry on what you're doing. And he said, this is just my recollection of the conversation. It was all of about three and a half minutes long. So you have to know Rennie to understand he's a man of few words. And so this conversation, in the time that I'm saying, well, if you quit, I'll take over what you're doing. He says, well, you know what? Because Rennie's a commercial fisherman. He makes boards on the side. He said, why don't you just move into the shop and we'll split all the expenses and I'll contract all my glasswork to you. Okay, that sounds good. So that's what happened. It was a five-minute conversation because the two of us are a lot alike. You know, we have work on a schedule. You know, there's no worrying about who's going to do what and when. And so when they widened the freeway in Santa Barbara, this... I probably was talking to him because I knew my shop was going to be knocked down because it was on the access road and they're going to widen the freeway. So I was, was going to have to move. So I move in like, I don't know, three months later. And, uh, you know, that was really was so fantastic. So now I end up in this beautiful factory that was made by the Castanola brothers for Rennie to be a surfboard factory. And I built all my own shops out and copied the air shop, you know, their sanding dust collection room and the fan through the ceiling, you know, I don't know how many times I built those things, I had three or four places, plus we helped Al Merrick do all that stuff to his building, so I always had to build my own places, I'd have my brother help me, Billy Barnfield helped, whoever, you know, different, Kim Robinson helped me, put shops together, he was in construction on the side then. So now I'm in the Aider shop, and Rennie only shapes, routes his own thin boxes, and glosses his own boards, and my crew is going to glass them. So now I have a business. We both make about 300 boards a year. I make the same. I mean, him and I made the most boards at the time in town. So we're making, I now have a factory, and I'm making 700 boards a year, and I'm 26 years old. It was like, and I have Kirk Putnam watching the showroom. That's a whole other story. <laughs> we won't go into that. But it was like, it was the greatest, it was like, who would have ever thought that I never even tried to be in the business? And, you know, and here's what, five or six years later. And it's like, wow, I've lived on the North Shore. I've had this career. And at that time, there were very few surfers older than us. And I'm thinking, man, when you get to 30, I guess you're going to have to find a real job. And uh, Did you ever find a real job? No. <laughs> but it's, it's, it was a fantastic period. And uh, in those years was the most money I ever made. And 
I remember that I cleared sixteen thousand dollars a year in the late six. Yeah, this is in the late seventies. And you're twenty five. Twenty six. Yeah. Now twenty six, twenty seven, and in those days, our house that we bought was forty thousand bucks on Cliff Drive, and my mortgage was two hundred fifty bucks. And I had two Volkswagens that are obviously paid for, and I'd always trade. There's all the every surfer in those days were almost all blue collar, and so you know we knew body guys, mechanics, and just furniture makers. So we traded surfboards for everything. Right, right. It was all barter. Right. We weren't too far different from two mash who were really the real yeah butter. possessors of the land. Right. You know. Right. And so uh, life was easy and. Uh, was that the most fun period for you that time? I would say so. I mean, that was probably the magic period. That's the magic that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would have to be. It was a time of innocence. You know, life was simple. We had a very tight knit community. In those days, you were either in the drug, you know, going down the drug path, or going down the religious path. And my, all of our friends, we believed in Christ. We went to church, and I ended up going to the Catholic Church, I still do, and uh, we were, you know, like the teetotalers of sorts, and because there was no in the middle, you know, it was like one extreme or the other, and and so uh, that was the period. Was, was Santa Barbara like, was Santa Cruz like Santa Barbara, or were they very, were they very different? Santa Barbara, here's the best, best comparison that I can make. So Santa Barbara and Santa Cruz are completely different. And so we you always laugh about, you know, we were on a boat. I'm sure I was with a group of people whose names I won't mention. We're on a surf trip together, probably at the ranch. And we're talking about all the similarities between Santa Barbara and Santa Cruz. And so they did made this analogy in the drug trade. And they said, well, you know, in Santa Barbara, you have these guys, you know, with the bold haircuts, and they kind of blow-dry their hair, and they have their little Porsches, and they sell lids. He says in Santa Cruz, a guy has, you know, a derelict trawler that he runs aground at 3 in the morning, you know, with 50 kilos on it, you know. <laughs> and so I always thought, well, that's kind of, because Santa Cruz is way hardcore compared to Santa Barbara, you know. I mean, we have our colorful characters down there it, it, it wasn't like up here you know this is much more raw yeah and I thought that was a pretty good analogy <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you come up here often at that time of course yeah you know, all my life I've been coming up here yeah because my dad we, we'd see my dad every summer who still who still lives at that time in San Mateo yes right so we were up every summer and every every winter twice a year and always stayed for 10 days so I've I've since the since I started surfing, I've always surfed in surfing the North Coast and Santa Cruz right. since the early sixties. Did, did you ever give your dad a board? I did. I I made him a uh, a redwood hot curl, and I had Kevin Ansel make the family and Greeny crest with a stallion, mother of pearl reared up, superimposed on the crest because my dad was big in the horse racing world, and uh, and I put. Uh, I can't remember how you say a thousand thanks in Italian, Yeah. but I had that inscribed on the board, and I gave him the board, because he, he really, he loved it, you know.
that boy still around? Yeah. Yeah. It's in the Fayette his family, one of his family homes. Very cool. Yeah. So where are we, 1975? Yeah, so now we made it to 76, 77. <laughs> and, uh, and now, you know, the pro, pro surfing is starting to get roots. You know, it's really was more the Australians, I'd say, South Africans. You know, Randy knows a lot more about it than me, but there was a big push for, we want to be like tennis players. We want to, we want to get paid, be professional surfers and get paid. And, the laid-back Californians generally, especially where I was from, Santa Barbara, black wetsuits and clear boards and surfing secret spots and, you know, keep everyone else out of our little lifestyle unless you're in it. None of this selling it out. So I was always uh, not, that wasn't of interest to me. I just like to make surfboards for people. So that was my path. And... I just, my dad, you know, had this insurance agency that his dad, our grandfather, it's, it's a long history of my family, but my grandfather came from the old country and he was, uh, a, you know, a very successful businessman and had founded an insurance company, retired, had a family, and then he started one for his own kids, which is my dad and uncles and my aunt. And so he told, it always led us to believe that we would own it someday. So my brother and I, as we got to about 30 years old, felt this duty, this is my mom's upbringing, that, you know, instead of sitting around waiting for someone to just, you know, hand us a bunch of money, this is how we envisioned it was going to happen. Boy, were we naive. We thought, why don't we go up there and work there and help carry it on. In the insurance business. Yeah. yeah. So Peter went up first. 79, 78 or 79, and then I went up at the end of 79, like 1980, and I just stopped making boards. I never intended it to be a career, but I had 10 or 11 years of what an incredible, I mean, to me, I thought, well, there's nothing else to do. What am did I you feel do? you had to make a change? Did you... No, I just, it was the call of duty. It's yeah. like when I did my civil service work, just yeah. something I had to do. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I did it, I did yeah. it for the family. Right. And, uh, and I mean, uh, there's a lot of compelling reasons to do it. And so I just stopped making boards. I moved up here, and it wasn't even in six months, you know, Bruce Fowler, who ran the White Owl shop, which is now retail, was up here managing the O'Neill shop, and, he had, uh, and I did make boards for the White Owl retail stores in the, in the 70s. And so he had me start making my boards that I made for them for the O'Neill shop. So I still have all the O'Neill lambs. I put an Andrini on the deck and an O'Neill on the bottom. And I was making boards just for fun on the side for the O'Neill store. And um, so, and then I slowly, people were asking me for boards. And I, now I'm back to making boards on the weekend, just like I did when I was doing my civil service work. So you're doing insurance work five days a week, and you're yeah. making boards two days a week. Yes. Okay. And I make, again, now I make the whole board start to finish. Did you enjoy the, did you enjoy the insurance work? Was something you enjoyed? It's, or? it's very difficult. You right. know, I'm a blue-collar guy and I go to college. You know, learning a trade like that, it was just extremely difficult to make that transition. Because, well, it's, well, 
But did you enjoy it? I mean, it sounds like well, it sounds no. like you had the perfect yes and no. You had the perfect, no. you had the perfect career going with the with the with the surfing industry. Well, but I didn't. But, but the problem was is that where the surfing was going, it was going down a path where I could visualize having like to be a retailer and have a lot more products and do more than just be a surfboard builder. And I wasn't interested in that. So I was interested in surfing way it was when I did it and I could see it was changing right. so I didn't want to continue I didn't want to have to adapt and try and fit into whatever it was going to become right. I didn't right and so now I have this career I have a reason to do it but no it's it, it's difficult work very very stressful and and I, uh, I've always loved working on board since I was 12 so I did that on the weekends and over time that became then I now I'm making 30 40 boards a year side and then it's 50 and then it's 55 and then it's 60 and it just slowly kind of crept back and then you I never then, let it go it kept coming You'd yeah let. I never try I never tried to be in the business I never have tried to be I just when people ask me to do work I never turned down work it seems like a bad idea <laughs> and so it just became a business it just grew into a bigger business again and uh, and then Joel introduced Herbie Fletcher started it, the, the renaissance for longboarding in the 70s, but really when Joel Tudor came around yeah. and Thomas Campbell was making his films, this is probably now late 80s and into the 90s, I don't know what it was, I'd say it's in the 90s, but somewhere in the early 90s. I, I loved all that, that people were embracing all the wonderful things that we'd abandoned. I never stopped longboarding, and I, I had a real interest in those displacement hull type boards that were the transition. So that was my personal passion. And so now people were like, "Oh, if you want that type of a board, there's only there literally was only three or four of us that really made that stuff, right? And I was one of them. I mean, Greg Little, you know, made them, and a couple guy, Skip Fry, it uh, made those type of boards." A group of guys in San Diego were known for doing Stu Kenson was one of them. You know, so there's a group of guys that made that stuff. Uh, and But I was one of them. And so guys started calling me and asking me to make boards, retro on boards and stuff like that. And so, <laughs> you know, that's how, I guess we're in the 80s now. <laughs> we made the shift. So, well, since we're in the 80s, let me get back to how I ended up really, once I started getting busy making boards, this is where Randy French comes in. So he's shaking his head over there. I don't know, because I knew Randy, and we don't remember how it happened, but it was, I'm sure it was surfing Scott's Creek. I ended up, was it on Brommer, 7th Avenue, 17th? He had his factory there, and he had me come in and work there. He did all my glassing. So I could shape there. He had an extra shaping room. So I was, I was shaping at home. It's so long ago. Think about how long ago that was. So I was shaping at home, glassing at home. Then I get invited by Randy to work there, here in Santa Cruz. And that went, I recall it lasting for maybe one or two years. And then he decided that he wasn't going to glass anymore. And he gave me the boot. <laughs> <laughs> can you actually be? Go back to that conversation. How'd that conversation go? Do you remember? 
wasn't any. It was. There's no animosity. Oh, what did God know? No, no, no. He was making a shift. I, I think. Uh, is that when he went to see Trent? Windsurfing. Yeah, I mean, he went to a whole different process of making boards, and that was a, his big move. And so it was really serendipitous. At the, simultaneous to that, that's when Doug Hout uh, invited me to just come over and work out of his place. Yeah. And so that was, so I started at Randy's. I was there for two years, and then I've been at Doug's to this day. And Doug, my, you know, known him since I was a teenager because I used to watch him shape and was always around. And when I was in Santa Barbara, I always visited the house shop when I'd come up here in the 70s. And Mark Angel was one of the top guys shaping boards then. Angel was connected to how, and Angel used to come down to my shop and he'd shape there. And so we, we all, always had a connection. As yeah. board builders, we all know each other. Right, right. You know? so, so I got invited to the house shop and, and I have worked there when Mike Wash was glassing. It's probably the finest laminator I would work with. You know, be Mike Wash. It's incredible. And um, he passed away. It's been quite a few years ago now. Maybe 20. Again, I don't know. Long time. But, you know, I shared a shaping room with Rick Newey. And uh, little Bucky had done in the sixth grade, you know, those poster board school projects and about making surfboards and he has these little snapshots of the different stages and at the bottom it says yes this is his conclusion he's summing up his little summary he says making surfboards isn't rocket science <laughs> every time i walked in that room i'd look at i'd read it and just start laughing <laughs> so i shaped there you know for for many years until i started shaping at my house just drive the boards down to the shop to get glass. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the 80s, the beginning of the 80s. We're going to come back to that. Just, we're going to do another show on the 80s. Yeah, 80s and 90s. What about 2000s? I mean, how many decades are we short here? <laughs> <laughs> we can do the 80s. I, I'm all for the 80s. Was different between the eight, what was the difference between the 80s and the 70s? You know, the, that, that, 80s, the 80s were a period, of, it was, for me, it was a very quiet period. Surfing was very quiet. Because you, because you, uh, you had the other career going on? That's part of it, but windsurfing had become a huge thing. And there's so a he, lot made of the right, he made the right move. Of course he did. Yeah. I'm always in the dust. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of my life. <laughs> Yeah, sir. Uh, windsurfing was a huge deal. Uh, Randy helped me. Sh I shaped hand only a handful for people that I knew that wanted them. And he helped me do the slalom boards and the asym asymmetrical wave riding boards. Really beautiful craft. I mean, he made beautiful, beautiful stuff. And uh, it was really fun for me making some of those. And, of course, I tried windsurfing. And like every other sport, I was just horrible. I just could not graduate past, you know, a big 16-footer in, in the lake with the center of the dagger board. <laughs> and when Augusta Wind would hit it, it'd take the sail and just catapult it right over the bow, you know. Did you ever see that, Randy? You ever see it? Did you see it? Ever go airborne? <laughs> it was embarrassing. Yeah. So, uh, 
I just stuck with surfing, and with the board building was quiet in the 80s. It wasn't until the late 80s when the resurgence of the retro boom and the surfboard building started to grow again for me. So that period was quiet for me. I was surfing very incredible waves. We all were all still surfing Scotts Creek and through the 80s. There's maybe 12 of us that were regulars. Every time you went out, it's the same guys. We all knew when to go. And uh, I remember surfing in town when it would be really big. Nobody surfed privates then. Yeah. I had friends tell me, yeah, privates is kind of an interesting way. But one time I went and surfed it. And I remember, how do you get down here? I paddled down there. And I mean, it was like a six, solid six foot just roping through there. You know, so it's kind of a flat wave. And there's no one out, you know. And I remember I surfed it. And I go, oh, that's interesting. I never went back. <laughs> he never did. You didn't have to. We surf right. Sewer Peak, First Peak, yeah. Indicator. Yeah, it's slap all the way down there. Mitchell's. Yeah. We surfed all the good spots. I mean, you didn't have to waste your time Pattern going down, down there. there yeah. You know, it's, it's too slow. Yeah. You know, I, I still laugh when I think of now that I'm a regular there. <laughs> because I can't, because it's slow. I can't surf anywhere else. So You surfed pretty laugh. good the other day when we surfed. Uh, And your brother, too. Well, for our age, we, we're age-appropriate. Yeah. We well, get we around. Right. But still, you know, I can't, it's, you can't compete with kids on boards that can duck dive and surf indicator. Yeah. You know, they duck dive eight foot suit, and yeah. I'm on a barge, you know. Right. I end up down at the pier <laughs> trying to roll one wave. <laughs> and they can just paddle three foot upside you and bump start. Right. You cannot get away from them, no. you know. No. There's over six people out I won't go up there anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's only about never. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. We had our run. We were fortunate. Right, do, you, do you think you want to off this guy right here? Is there anything you want to bring up? I mean, you want to say, want to interject a couple of things? Or one, ask one me, question. Ask me the best surf trip you've ever been on. All right. I'm asking you, what's the best surf trip you've ever been on? The best surf trip I ever It sounds like Peru, but maybe I'm wrong. No, the best surf trip I ever went on was with Randy. He invited me to go to the Maldives, and I don't remember. I mean, we were trying what to remember. Two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Yeah, it was around <laughs> there, and we were on. Up, it was a wood hull. I believe it was a wood hull. It's hundred foot long, beautiful boat, and he had his crew, some great great Santa Cruz guys were all there, we were all together and I was with Kim Robinson you know, from the Channel Islands uh, place, we were best friends since we were teenagers and him and I bunked together and we surfed three times a day so you could only surf when the tide was moving and not moving very much and so three times a day for ten days, so that's thirty sessions and I'd say twenty-six of them were the best sessions of my life Really? I'll never forget it. It was so epic. What we was had so, good? so much fun. Yeah. Well, it's the surf. It was like the Hollister Ranch, except bigger and warm. And we'd fish. They would fish off the back of the boat every day, just in the channel where we're moored, and get the most beautiful, you know, yellowfin tuna, and make sushi, you know, right on the back of the boat. Meals were fantastic, and the what a 
guys love roasting people, which is really foreign to me. It's really shocked. You never roast anybody it. before? Oh, of course not. <laughs> and everyone would tease me because I brought I brought a 710 and a 76, so I had the two longest boards on the boat. And they, uh, you know, would roast me about, oh yeah, you're a longboarder, and I'd say, oh yeah, right, a longboard. That's that's a short board, you know. And so after but those boards worked, too, didn't they? They worked better than anything else on the boat. What was Randy riding? What were you riding, Randy? Remember? He's riding a six-six double, a single wing, swallowtail twin fin, and he ripped ripped on it. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he he always rode small boards, and that would have been a bigger board for him. I think a six-four, maybe a six-six. But one day these Italian guys come over, and they can barely speak English. So funny. And they're and they're down at the at the at the bow at the stern, and I'm up on the upper deck, and they're all trying. They're doing sign language, and they're pointing and they're pointing at these pictures, and they're basically, and Randy's down there with his posse, and they're trying to understand what these what these crazy dagos are trying to say, and then they just start busting up laughing, and then they turn around, and they're, get on down here, and they and they start yelling at me. They're looking for. The long border. <laughs> they thought it was the funniest thing that ever happened. Well, in Italy, they don't know what a longboard is, so they're watching me surf and they've taken pictures of me surfing. And they they wanted to bring these pictures over to show me. I got some really, I could ride bigger waves than the other guys because I had a bigger board, right? Right. And so they came over. Oh, where's the longboarder? And they had all these pictures. They're all proud. They thought I'd be all happy about it. So they roasted me for the for the rest of the trip about being the longboarder with my 710. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't care. Of course not. No. You're catching wind. <laughs> Alright. What a trip. That was the 70s. We got a little bit of the 80s. We got a little ahead of ourselves. But we did. We'll get back. And we've been, we've been, we're going to do the next show at, at uh, Mr. French's house. He's invited us over. Perfect. You know? But well, if, you, if you're going to come over, I think he's going to he's going to want one of those jackets. I'll bring. <laughs> no, I'll bring him one. Yeah, yeah. You don't have one. Well, he doesn't have one. Of your I don't need one. No, he deserves one. I don't deserve one. He deserves one. I have a book for you. Perfect. I would love to do that. I'll be a, definitely do it at his house because yeah. there's a fire pit. Yeah. We'll discuss the rest of you. And and the wine cellar, I've already inspected it. it it's up to snuff. Did you pull it, it something out? It meets muster. Huh? It meets muster. Be... <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Mr. Andrea, thank well, you thank so you. much. Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate your time. And, uh, for... I, I, I don't think I've ever met somebody who's met, who knew so many names from the 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, you said I wanted go... to come because I want, you know, he remembers all this stuff. I can't remember shit anymore. But did you, when, you said, when oh, yeah. he said some of the names, you're like, oh, I, yeah, I remember that guy. We're about the same age, yeah. so we, we shape during the same eras yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. We, we have a lot of parallels, and of course, that's why he's in my book. But I had a very different philosophy about the way that I approached it. Like, I never worked for anyone. Yeah. And I was, I was a shaping snob. In other words, I wouldn't make a board for somebody that I didn't think they were worthy of it. Surf better than I had seen them surf. Thank you. Yeah. But we, we 